Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Robert Stone, who died on January 10th, 2015, at the age of 77, won the National Book Award in 1975 for his novel Dog Soldiers, and was a finalist four other times, and twice was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Among his books were the critically acclaimed A Flag for Sunrise, set in war-torn Central America, and Damascus Gate, set within the conflicted city of Jerusalem. His memoir, Prime Green, Remembering the Sixties, is one of the best books written about the counterculture. I had a chance to interview Robert Stone twice, this first time while he was on tour for his novel, Bay of Souls, on April 25, 2003, and then again four years later for his memoir. Robert Stone's books tend to have complicated characters existing during complex political and social turmoil. Two of his books became films. Hall of Mirrors became WUSA, W-U-S-A, and Dog Soldiers Who'll Stop the Rain, which is discussed later in this interview. Robert Stone, after Damascus Gate, which was a very large, very intense book, you told reporters that you were planning to write a comic novel, perhaps set in Alaska. What happened to that, and what brought you to write Bay of Souls, most of which is set in the Caribbean? I just switched plans. I, I went to Alaska or to British, British Columbia, and I got the novel and I began it. I mean, I got it. I got a fix on it. And I was working on it. At a certain point, this other story came up and took over my consciousness. So I put that other story, the Alaska story, comic novel was a different thing as well. I put the rest of the work on a back burner. I do that fairly often. I've changed books in mid-course. I hope I can get this, these other things done. There's a quote from Damascus Gate. It was actually quoted in a review of Damascus Gate from the New York Times. And it seems that this quote, which I'll read you, also applies to your earlier work, the locations in your earlier work, and also uh, the island of St. Trinity in Bay of Souls. It was hard to tell who anyone was and what they wanted because the emergency basis on which the state proceeded created constant improvisations. So it seems that this is more than merely a statement about what's happening in Jerusalem in 1992, but in fact a statement of how characters travel through Robert Stone's different worlds. I would say that's probably right, yes. What attracts you to that sort of ambiguity? When that sort of ambiguity is visible, we are able to see the way most things work. I mean, there's usually a more elaborate structure of concealment. When an infrastructure is, is more in place, we're less able to detect the, the petty human, the ordinary human compulsions 
or often not edifying ones that drive the the power of the state and the power and uh, uh, and its politics. But when the infrastructure is down, when when the marble columns are broken, when you can see in through the walls, then you have, in a way, a clearer picture of uh, human nature at work in the political realm. Uh, this I know that's a pessimistic attitude, but I my attitude becomes more and more pessimistic as I as I get older. The quote also applies, I think, to what's happening in Iraq today as well. Oh, it certainly applies to what's happening in Iraq. I mean, there is, I think there is uh, rather a corrupt underlying uh, motive really everywhere, in every quarter. I mean, these references to virtue and to liberation are, are, are truly grotesque because this is everyone, I think, at their worst. The representatives of the third world, the practitioners of religion, the liberty-loving, expanding power of the United States, the conniving of the Europeans, uh, it ain't pretty. And uh, in large part, it's, it's, it's corrupt. So indeed, there's, we, we have a slice of life there. And I keep thinking uh, as I read Bay of Souls, Damascus Gate, if um, it's almost as if you place a Robert Stone character there and you've, got, you've almost got it set out right for you. I have a, 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 a protagonist who, you know, who, who, whose sensibility reflects mine, surely. Uh, I usually have a, a female counterpart who is probably less, you know, is usually less like me, but, but not entirely. Uh, often I have triads, if you want, three central characters. I've tended to have that. They've usually been two men and a, and a woman, often two men uh, involved with the same woman. But that is more a matter of dynamic than, than politics. The character of Michael Ahern in Bay of Souls is going through um, midlife crisis, spiritual malaise, as is Lucas in Damascus Gate, as is, well, virtually all your characters, Frank Hollywell, Flag for Sunrise, Owen Brown, Outer Bridge Reach, John Converse, Dog Soldiers. They're in crisis. I don't know. It seems so much, so many of the people who I've known who've been close to me, I myself and the people I love, have been enduring crisis for a lot of their lives. I mean, trying to think their way through the world as it is, trying to think their way through the American situation, trying to deal with the ideals that many of them had taken on at times of their lives, ideologies that abandoned them or, or, or that they abandoned, loyalties that evaporated into meaninglessness, attempts to return to what had nourished them earlier, only to find that it wasn't there anymore. All these things touching off uh, crises and all of them, or many of them witnessed by me. I mean, everything from, you know, deaths to ODs to just uh, personal breakdowns. Uh, it's been, it seems, it has seemed pretty rough. Uh, I mean, a number of people I know managed to be pretty happy, but that's, <laughs> that's a talent. I mean, uh, I think you have to maintain a little bit of the child in yourself. I think, I think in order not to, to despair utterly, 
you have to really find your game. I mean, with me, it's writing. Uh, writing is a, has a satisfaction that keeps me going. Doing something that I think is useful, that I think contributes to the inside of the world. I don't know what I would do with myself if I, if I weren't doing that. It gives me the idea that I'm still learning how to do something, that I'm still learning about the world. And uh, that's kind of what I live for. Crisis uh, as my subject is the result of my seeing a great deal of it, I think. The characters, uh, in a general sense, in Damascus Gate, everyone who goes to Jerusalem is looking to pull themselves out of their world. Michael Ahern is doing the same thing in Bay of Souls. He is doing the same thing. He's headed for a religious context, not quite his own, in, in Bay of Souls, not his own at all. And that religious context, that re, uh, calls to him uh, uh, magically almost, Kabbalistically in Damascus Gate through the appearance of these, these lower. Now, I had a, I had a friend this actually took place in Haiti, which I moved to the island of, of St. Trinity, a, a Haitian-influenced part of an island. But I had a friend uh, who endeavored to become a serviteur, that is, a devotee of Houdin. And he had once been possessed, uh, and he was attempting to, to call the loa back down on him. I saw something of that ceremony. I wasn't supposed to see too much. But I did see something of it. I was kind of holding his coat in the in the bushes, like, and uh, he he did not succeed in calling the loa down. Ahern rejects the appearance of of uh, Lara's soul when when it presents itself, and he rejects the possibility of his own uh, rejuvenation. Uh, in Damascus Gate, any possibility. Uh, that Lucas might find in being a Jew, in in taking part in the building of uh, this nation, he he rejects. He's to one thing and the other. He doesn't want to part with anything. He 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 really doesn't go for loyalty. You know, and ethnic loyalties don't. He prefers out and out corruption to intense ethnic loyalty. That is not something he, he likes. It's his experience of it is, has not been good. So in a way, these are both people sort of exposed and called to by the magic of a, of a place, of a specific place. And they, they fail it, or if it doesn't fail them. They, they fail it for, for various reasons. This, uh, you mentioned something uh, before about people who were kind of looking for and, and um, reveling in the chaos. And uh, in many of your books, you do have one character or two characters who do that. There's one in um, Damascus Gate who seems to be almost the evil presence behind everything, but he's not really evil, and that's the German character. In Bay of Souls, there's nobody quite like that, but Lara's partner in the hotel is the closest thing to that possibly also the colonel who will eventually become the ruler of the country. Well, Lara's partner is, 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 is a man in a, in, you know, in a truly absurd position. His father was a really successful novelist whose picture never appeared on his, uh, on his highly successful novels because he was black and his novels thrived in the South and their subject was the old plantation is, and the gallant South. Uh, is there any actual novelist like that? Yeah. Who? 
well, I don't want to get into to 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 proper names. There, there, there. So this is the son of 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 the the, right. the novelist who who continued the genre, tried to continue the genre, but really is into this this hotel, and you know, he becomes Lara's brother's lover, and when Lara's brother dies, he's continuing the hotel and trying to. He's not. He's not evil. He's a very cool guy. I mean, he looks at all things with a, with a jaundiced eye. I mean, having come out of that background, having having his father explain to him now, well, this is we do what we do. We make up all these stories for white people. They don't know we're black, and we, uh, uh, you know, it was a, it was an odd perspective for him to uh, to embrace. So he's. He is, he is certainly uh, a man who's seen a lot of rel- relativism. I'm not sure if I think it's the character's name is Zimmer in the um, – is that the group? Yeah, yeah, Zimmer yeah in, 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 in Damascus Gate. I don't think he's necessarily evil too either. I mean he certainly has his own priorities. Yeah, he has his <laughs> own priorities He's and he's uh, he's a little I, – I, I thought of Richard Kapusinski when I thought of, uh, of Zimmer, a guy who's seen the – Third world, uh, from the perspective of the Eastern Bloc, I mean, we had on the Western Bloc, we 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 connived at our atrocities, and we had our dictators, and uh, and so on. And there there are journalists who could tell you a lot about the bad side of our proteges in the Third World during the Cold War. Kapuscinski, uh, Zimmer was a guy who was working the other side, the um, the Ethiopians, say the uh, you know the other side of the of the coin. And, and in many cases, it was it was far worse, the brutality uh, and so forth. He's seen he's seen a whole lot. He's a guy whose relationship with the state, with the with the Israeli state, is sort of uh, you know they can disclaim him. He's a guy they can disclaim. Uh, but he, but he also will buy weapons on their behalf when there's an embargo, or, or buy weapons for somebody else, or sell weapons when there's an embargo, and enrich himself at the same time. He's a shady, he's a shady character. There are plenty of guys like him around. Dog soldiers and Damascus Gate take place in very real circumstances. Flag for Sunrise takes place in a fictional country, but it's so closely based on real countries at a time when there was conflict. Bay of Souls is slightly different. It takes place in a fictional country, which is very clearly fictional. Very clearly. It isn't Haiti, and we know it's not Haiti. When you're doing that, it changes the entire mode of how you deal with research and how you deal with invention. Where does Robert Stone's mind go? How do you reconnect in that way? Well, in that case, the principal connection was Vaudan or voodoo, and that remained very close to the to the Haitian model that was the the binding the binding material i mean what what was authentic i mean literally or, or authentic there was was the i you know i hope uh, what required research what required some meditation was the uh, the voodoo and my introduction to voodoo came from one of the great figures one of the great uh, uh, spiritual artists of the uh, of the of the twentieth uh, century, uh, Maya Darren, who was a filmmaker and a dancer who who lived until the early fifties. She died at forty after her trip to Haiti, after being possessed by the goddess Ursula. A chapter in in her book. Her book is called Divine Horseman, and she 
describes possession by Ursula in a chapter of her book called The White Darkness. And it is one of the great spiritual adventures. It's very frightening and very moving and very strong. Uh, Maya Darren was also significantly, I think, very beautiful. She's a, uh, a figure that, uh, you know, that really, really appeals. And um, she somehow lost her life gliding in and out of these worlds. I mean, I don't know. There may be some prosaic reason or you know, that caused her to die, but everybody relates the fact that she died after being possessed with a certain shudder. I, I thought about her a lot. She really influenced me in, in the writing of uh, Bay of Souls. Which brings the question, how did you come to examining, specifically examining voodoo? Because in, in Damascus Gate, we see examinations of Kabbalah, Sufi, eschatological cults, this whole spiritual framework so intense that the book sometimes delves into that and takes us away from the story, which I found great, but it, it is kind of a side trip. Where do you get from that to the voodoo of Bay of Souls? Well, the voodoo is driving, I mean, it's really driving the female character considerably. And it's mixed in with what tempts uh, Michael, because part of Lara's magic is her mystery and her connection with with voodoo. And Michael is a man who tries to maintain a negative capability, as Keats says. He's he's not, he, you know, he has lost his faith. Quotes, but he is ready to see in these things that Lara believes some kind of. He's he can see the force of them. He can see the power of them. He can see, I think, that the choice. A, cho a choice of some kind is offered him. He mocks her at the end of the book in that mysterious ending that we have. He says, he, he quotes uh, the, 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 the verse that says, the spirit goeth where it listeth. He says, no thanks. I, I'm just not standing still for that. I mean, he rejects it outright. He'd, he'd rather go into this kind of imminent death in life that he's in now that he's trying to figure how to get out of than have anything more to do with that. You know, and I think there's hope for him somehow, but I, I don't know what, what exactly it is. Well, where does Robert Stone go from Damascus Gate into Bay of Souls? Then we, we can follow the character of Michael Ahern because he was not caught in that earlier world. He was right. in a literary world. Right. But Robert Stone goes from these deep, intense discussions about this religion where it seems in Damascus Gate, you don't buy any of it, into Bay of Souls, where it seems like you're maybe buying into it. Well, what I'm doing in Bay of Souls is I'm writing about people who are being compelled by circumstances, by their circumstances, to buy into it at times. I mean, I know people who buy into it, and they're people I, I really respect. I mean, the guy who I was I was attending his you know, his attempt at possession this is a guy I respect tremendously. So, you know, I don't believe it. At least I don't believe it on, you know, on, on Friday morning, you know, when I've had a cup of coffee and, you know, and everything's, and I'm and br breakfast reality is, uh, you know, is around. I, I feel differently, however, if I'm, you know, if I'm walking on a beach in, uh, in Cap Etienne and I see uh, the Citadel by, 
heat lightning, you know, on the on the face of the mountain, then I begin to wonder what forces might be at work here. I don't believe those forces, but I do offer the vision in this book of of people who from time to time, to their surprise, are overtaken by belief, momentary, incidental belief. A couple of quick questions about your research on Damascus Gate, and then I'd like to go back a little and talk a little about your career and your writing in general. Part of the uh, shifting alliances in um, Damascus Gate in Jerusalem concerns Shin Bet, which is the internal secret police of... Right. You claim in the book that they sort of created Hamas and it kind of got out of control. Is that true? It seems to be true. Nobody seriously denies it in the journalistic circles that I know, I know. And the purpose was really to split an organization called the Muslim Brotherhood, which had great influence uh, in the Islamic world. It, uh, it, had a, it went back quite a way. Uh, it had been a signal organization against the British and in the in the arab revolution uh the the uh, authorities who always had success in getting snitches in getting agents they were always they were always good at that and they thought okay we'll let's create our own outfit that we can control from day 1 and they encouraged a, a sort of young extremist wing of the muslim brotherhood to become hamas when Hamas appeared, it was not what they had hoped for. It was a Frankenstein. Their agents did not take money, uh, which was always always important on the in the in the relationship. Uh, I mean, if you read uh, Tom Segev's great book, One Palestine Complete, you see that the the constant uh, corrupting by money of Arab organizations, the constant readiness, the infuriating readiness of so many Arab organizations to go on the pad was an instrument of control for uh, Zionist uh, activists. Suddenly Hamas wasn't going on the pad. It was running schools. It was was doing things that outlaw, uh, violent outlaw uh, organizations say sometimes say they do and they don't really do. But Hamas was really doing it. It was filled with that awful and fearful combination of love and hate that you see in Islam. The love for the fellow Muslim and for the and for the law and the stark hatred of the of the of the infidels, especially the infidel in power. So they had really created something very dangerous and created a problem they had they have not yet resolved with Hamas. Damascus Gate does concern a variety of different organizations, and all of which are real, I would assume, and all of which interact in some very strange way. There's a very long set piece in which Lucas goes into Gaza. Did you go into? Did you follow that route in Gaza? Yes, we did. We 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 drove through one of the one of the worst riots uh, of the whole the the. Entire Intifada that day. From one end, we drove from one end to the other because we couldn't stop anywhere. We kept getting deeper and deeper into it. Uh, yeah, we did. We made a number of trips to to Gaza. We were driving in a little white UN car, and with us was uh, my wife and myself and uh, 
Sandro Tsuchi, who was a uh, uh, UN uh, public relations man, a photographer, and his wife, who was Turkish. So there were four of us in one of these little cars, and we're driving around. Uh, everybody's everybody's wired. Everybody's out to get everybody, and we were afraid of the IDF, of the Israeli soldiers, and we were afraid of the rioters. I mean, we uh, we had no, it was as though we had you know no friends anywhere. The um, the the characters there are at times uh, doing gun running in exchange for drugs, which I found very interesting because uh, aside from hearkening back to dog soldiers and other works, uh, it struck me that this was this was in Israel where one would think that that kind of stuff didn't happen quite like it happened in Southeast Asia, but it does. It does, but it happens, but it's more, it's more controlled. The Bedouins are... Really allowed to to carry drugs over the army is under instruction not to interfere. This is a little bit like letting the letting the uh, Montagnards carry drugs, and the Bedouins who are not inimical, particularly uh, at least traditionally, the Hawitat Bedouins have been allowed to carry uh, to carry drugs across the across these uh, across Sinai they haven't been interfered with whereas you know the, the searches you know searches for weapons and so forth are are careful searches for drugs are half you know half-assed and 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 not 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 serious they do wink at a at a uh at a narcotics tra- traffic i don't think they uh, uh, above getting into business with the uh, with the Colombians I think at one time when the Colombians were hiring Israeli commandos and 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 British SAS guys and so forth trying to handle trying to train uh, uh, military specialists in uh, for, as bodyguards and so forth I think there was a little back and forth of coke for guns I mean there was a lot of uh, I mean it, it seemed to me there were that Israel is a place where there Fair amount of drugs around. I would have thought that people reading Damascus Gate in 1998 might have shuddered at the thought that right-wing Jews, uh, eschatological Christians, and um, Islamist terrorists, quote unquote, would all band together because they had a similar goal in the short run, but not in the long term. I think in 1998, that might have shocked people. But today, when we find out that the ISI put the Taliban in power, Pakistan fights the Taliban, the story of Saddam Hussein, it, it, it's no longer, it's, it's, it's today's headlines. It's no longer, you know, fiction and what's this guy Stone doing? Right. Well, and Shia, you know, the, the, the Shia plot against, uh, against uh, Saddam, they plot against us. The, the the wildest stuff is really that which is is based on one you know a, a spectacular concept that we don't come across every day which is to change history almost magically by changing the geography of Jerusalem i mean here you have a place that is like the lever of the world i mean one can make the messiah come it's like you know field of dreams if you build right. a temple you can make the messiah come this in a way originated when religious Zionism really waxed with the 67 war, whereas Zionists had always backed away from the state of Israel and from, from war, they, 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 they suddenly thought, well, maybe there's a message here. 
maybe Messiah is coming and we should get behind it. There is a guy, there is actually a guy, talk about the, the you know, the, the Christian hustlers of whom there are so many with their books. There's also a guy who will sell you, uh, memorial pieces of the temple. If you want to commemorate your uncle or something with a, a bench or, or a, little, a little wall in the temple, which is when it's, when it's built, you can, you can do it. The whole idea of these peculiar alliances coming together as you were doing the research, are you at a point now after having written books like Flag for Sunrise and Dog Soldiers and having done that research and been a journalist, are you a little bit jaded to that or do you still find it pretty outrageous? I find it outrageous. If, I, if I'm jaded, it's only because it always sort of works the same way in a sense and I don't want to be telling the same story. One of the things I was trying to learn in, in Bay of Souls was economy, trying to, to, which is you know why it's so much shorter, leaving out what wasn't essential, getting the human stories told. I mean, the sexual side of this was important. Uh, the, the sexual uh, frenzy that he's in, his, his, his lust for her. So it's not that I'm not going to deal with international politics anymore. I mean, it's, it's all I know in a way. But I don't think that I'll restrict myself to these stories of intrigue. I may take smaller stories within the larger context. But in the background of Bay of Souls, the underlying backstory, which is a little more hidden in Bay of Souls, is the same. I mean, it takes place in the Caribbean, but it's the same as Damascus Gate, and that's not because Robert Stone is doing the same thing, but because the stories are the same. The story is the same. And I mean, I was just talking to a, uh, a Salvadorian uh, who, for and for him, one, one of the most important elements in the book was the, the you know, that plot, that funny scene in Washington where she's talking to Triptolemos and these, these guys. I mean, he registered that. Uh, that's a tremendously important part of the, of the book to him. And it is, I mean, it is an important part of the book, but for most readers, it's, you know, it's more color in a way, political color rather than local color. But he really got that, you, you know, where the, the professor's being thrown out of airplanes and uh, yeah, he, he responded to that. Robert Stone, a couple of uh, other areas I'd like to talk to you about. You, Let's talk about your work in Hollywood. Dog Soldiers became Who'll Stop the Rain? hated the fact that they changed the name. <laughs> no, and they didn't even use the song. So I was told there was a lot of stuff was going on with that picture that I did not know because I was an innocent. Even after doing another picture, I was still an innocent. And I read Steve Bach's book called Final Cut about the making of Heaven's Gate. And there in a footnote, I see a reference to Judith Roscoe and myself who did the script. And it explains how much this guy who was in distribution hated, he hated the movie and he hated Nick Nolte and he hated everything about it. This was the guy who sent me a, no, a memo, said, we find that women, women, he said, in the West don't like dogs and soldiers. So we're changing the name. I thought, surely this guy is putting me on in some way. He was. I mean, this was some kind of, you know, some kind of, 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 of put on. But I didn't have, you know, I had no power over it, except quit, which I ultimately did. But it became, who will stop the rain? And it was dumped. I mean, I remember that. It was that. dumped. It was what he did. Well, one of the reasons it was, it was, well, two reasons it was dumped. That guy hated it. And 
everybody at United Artists went over to form Orion Pictures, leaving a different set of people, the people who hated the movie, over at United Artists. So United Artists told the distributors, this is a terrible movie, terrible movie. It's a very bad movie, and it's a pro-drug movie, and it's a badly acted movie, and you're going to hate it, and your audiences are going to hate it. But if you will show it for us for three days, we beg you, we will give you a deal on a pink pant. So the, <laughs> the theater owner said, oh, my God, what, you know, what terrible movie is coming our way that we have to show? And they showed it. They arranged, you know, they all signed, right, three days, no more, three days. Then the script, which, you know, I don't know, I it, I didn't think it was deathless, but I guess it, it did all right. It did get nominated for the Guild Award for the, the Writers Guild gives for, for scripts. It did get some pretty good reviews. Got some very good reviews. Yeah. It was and a very the, good movie. Yeah, in many ways, a lot, especially abroad, people loved it. And so the exhibitors are saying, what? You told us this was the worst movie ever made. You know, and it's... It really seems to be a pretty good movie. I remember it because it had originally been promoted as a major film, and then the name was changed, and it was kind of a second bill thing, sort of like what, I guess, what they did to Touch of Evil. And it, it hasn't been rediscovered yet, and I assume one of these days it will be. Major director, Carl Reith. His career was in, uh, Carol just died, I'm, I'm sad to say. He, he was a really great guy and a great director and he did his best and they were all over and they wouldn't give him a budget that he could work with. They had taken the final cut from him on Isadora. This is the guy who wrote the art of film cutting. They took the final cut of Isadora away from him. His position in the industry was was very weak. And then all this intrigue, I mean it was it was the sort of collapsing Hollywood system at its worst. You know, why I had to end up in the middle of all that. Maybe because of the, you know, the, the book kind of books I write. Now, I couldn't do justice to that particular uh, degree of intrigue and turpitude, but I did get, uh, I did get uh, Children of Light out of it, which ho the Hollywood industry hates very much, and which I, I, on the other hand, I'm kind of fond of. The world doesn't like it too much either, but I like it. What other um, Hollywood films have you worked on? Well, the only other films I've worked on are films that I've do doctored that I'm not allowed to say what they are by basis of my contract. After the experience of, um, of Who'll Stop the Rain, Dog Soldiers, how do you feel about a, a book like Damascus Gate or, or even more important because the, uh, the, the through line story is a little bit easier to translate, a book like Bay of Souls becoming a film? I would not attempt to to write a script. I mean, I'm, 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 I certainly will never try that again, where I'm negotiating my own story with, with somebody else. But I don't see any reason why this shouldn't, a good movie shouldn't be made out of this, you know, in the old, you know, even using, you know, the, some, some old fashioned, you know, local color and beaded curtains and you know, <laughs> what the hell, uh, without traducing the story. Robert Stone, you born in Brooklyn, 1937, wound up on the Merry Pranksters bus and a character as a character in Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. When you look back on that now, what, what are your thoughts about those days? You know, it was just fun. A, a bunch of us had, you know, we'd been around uh, Stanford. I, I had gotten a Stegner Fellowship. So, I mean, all that kind of began as a sort of Stanford 
fraternity party. I mean, not really a fraternity party, but it was a bunch of graduate students around Stanford. And that changed somewhat. I mean, the more, as the more respect of people kind of dropped out. Basically, you know, our, I was just talking to my, fr- my friend George Walker yesterday, who, who I was with in that, uh, that scene in Mexico that, uh, that Wolf describes. He was one of the, the people who was there. And, you know, we were, we were just a bunch of, of young kids, you know, living in this disheveled house in, in Mexico. We didn't know what the risks we were running. Actually, we, were, we could have ended up in a lot of trouble in Mexico, but Mexico wasn't like that yet. It was only being turned into that by, you know, by American pressure and, and uh, so forth. We were just messing with regular people. You know, we were mocking the, the squares and, you know, we thought we were, we thought we knew everything. We thought we, thought we were wise guys and, uh, you know, and nobody else was. And so we were just a bunch of obnoxious, drug-taking young characters you know there there wasn't much profound i think in the end about it i wouldn't have missed it it was great fun it did take a toll i mean a lot of people a number of people are dead who were on that bus uh who got in got really into drugs and uh everybody that got into drugs which was most of us uh, for a while had some trouble you know alcohol and drugs i think have troubled uh the you know party types like us Nothing is free. It's funny. One of the laws of life is that nothing is free. I don't know why that is. I think it's maybe one of the things I write about. I mean, you, you just have to pay off on one end or the other. It's almost like a metaphysical fact. I think in the novel, it becomes obvious that you have to do that. And that's kind of the quote unquote, the difference between novel and real life, but real life too. It's true in real life. Absolutely true in real life. You can make it happen in a novel, illustrate it in a novel. And sometimes, you know, if, if you don't do it right, it'll seem contrived. But it's no contrivance. It's, it's a law of life. And it certainly happens out on the, out in, out on the street, out in real life. Robert Stone, uh, now you've, you've finished Bay of Souls. Are you going to go back to larger novels, try another small one? What, what's next on uh, your agenda? I don't know what the length of this is now, the one I've just begun. I'm going to be guided by the force of the story and the characters for a while. I'm really having fun with it, but I don't know too much about it. And I mean, this is not an exotic locale, particularly. It's, I mean, I've been teaching it to Yale for years. I just resigned. So I thought I wanted to use some of that strange background. I mean, that's an odd world. Yale is a strange world, has its secret societies and, and whatnot. So, uh, so I'm, I'm taking that on and, uh, and I might do a little reminiscing, uh, some nonfiction reminiscing about the, uh, about the bus. Electrocoolate acid test is for many of us, this definitive bit of journalism about that era. How true is it? I have always said the same thing about it, and I was—I've always been impressed with uh, with the same thing, which is how amazingly accurate it was. Considering that it, you know, Wolf never seemed to take notes, and he always dressed up in this preposterous costume, and watched, and everybody was aware of him. He didn't, you know, he didn't fit in much anywhere. It's amazingly accurate. Not only the, uh, the 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 you know the the part about us the the prankster stuff, but even even uh, Bernstein's party, people who were there tell me I was not at that party, but people who were there tell me that it's 
you know, it certainly conveyed the, you know, the the spirit and the and the attitudes of the of the of the different speakers. And I think that's true of the electric Kool-Aid acid test. If it if it if the dialogue isn't isn't letter perfect, the spirit, the vibes, the the way people were, what they were like, what the scene was like, are very, very accurately done. Following the interview, only four books were published. In 2007, it was his memoir, Prime Green, at which time I interviewed him again. It was followed in 2010 by a collection of short stories, Fun with Problems. The college novel mentioned at the end of the interview, Death of the Black-Haired Girl, was published in 2013, and a collection of nonfiction, The Eye You Can See With, was published posthumously in 2020. You've been listening to an interview with novelist Robert Stone, who died on January 10, 2015, at the age of 77. The interview was conducted in the KPFA studios on April 25, 2003, while he was on tour for his novel, Bay of Souls. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.